The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 9, and I'm going to read verses 14 to 23. That's Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 23. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if... God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in your meticulous and purposeful sovereignty, you have seen to it that an evil law be overturned. Thank you that now more babies are alive and that more babies will live. Thank you for thwarting our adversary, the snake and dragon who hates babies. We're so grateful. Thank you. Now, in this sermon... Would you please help us honor you as we further think about how you predetermined the destiny of certain individuals for salvation and others for condemnation? Amen. Well, this is the fourth and final sermon in a four-part series on predestination. And in this series, I'm answering one big question. What does the whole Bible teach about predestination. And to do that, I've crafted and arranged 15 questions. Thus far in sermons 1 to 3, I have introduced the series and answered questions 1 through 10, all about election. In this fourth and final sermon, I plan to answer five questions, the five, five final ones, and they're specifically about reprobation. But before I show you those questions so you know where we're going, I'd like to remind you how I'm defining these three terms. So predestination means that God predetermined the destiny of certain individuals for salvation, that's election, and others for condemnation, that's reprobation. So predestination has two parts, choosing to save some, that's election or positive predestination, and choosing not to save others, that's reprobation or negative predestination. 
More specifically, I'd define election this way. God sovereignly and graciously chose to save individual sinners. Reprobation is that God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them. So here are different ways Scripture speaks about the two. Uh, Vessels of mercy, which God has prepared beforehand for glory, and vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The elect and the rest. Jesus' sheep and not Jesus' sheep. So election is positive predestination for eternal life with distinct goals in accord with God's love, mercy, and grace. Reprobation is negative predestination for eternal death with distinct goals in accord with God's wrath, power, and justice. And as we, in this sermon, talk about reprobation, just know that this requires special care because this is a a difficult issue to process theologically and emotionally. It may feel to some of us like God is unfair if he chooses to save some and not others. Now, choosing some and passing over others really does accord with our everyday experience of reality. When I chose my wife-to-be over there to marry me, I passed over all other women. I chose Jenny and not the rest. So the, the very concept of elect and election implies the concept of non-elect and passing over. But reprobation is not simply a doctrine that election logically implies. The Bible explicitly teaches it. And I plan to explain and apply what the Bible teaches about reprobation by answering these five questions. Questions 11 to 15. Who ultimately causes it? How does God accomplish it? What's the result of it? What's the goal of it? And who deserves blame for it? So we'll start with question 11, who ultimately causes reprobation. A handful of New Testament passages explicitly or implicitly specifies who the ultimate cause of reprobation is. And the primary passage on reprobation is Romans 9, 6 through 29. So we begin there. We just read part of it. And I'd summarize it this way. God, the potter, prepared Vessels of wrath for destruction. So God, in Romans 9, is the one who passes over individuals he has not chosen. God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, verse 11 says. God sovereignly chose whether to have mercy and compassion on a person or whether to harden a person. So what's decisive is not what a human desires or does. What's decisive is God's choosing to have mercy or compassion on a person. It depends on not human will, not exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's what verse 16 says. And then Paul uses this analogy of a potter and a clay. So children, on the back of your little uh, handout for this, there's a potter forming pottery. That's what, It's coming right from Romans 9. God is the potter. And humans are the clay. That's what the analogy teaches. God has the right to form one vessel for honorable use. He has the right to choose to save a sinner. And God has the right to choose another vessel for dishonorable use. He has the right 
to choose to pass over and condemn a sinner. And then Paul says this in verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So humans fit into one of two groups, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction or vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. That's either reprobation or election. Now, some people will object that this word prepared, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, that that is a passive word. Uh, It doesn't explicitly identify God as the one who prepared the vessels of wrath for destruction. See how the next word prepared, it says that he has prepared beforehand for glory. But this doesn't say who did the preparing. This word prepared is what theologians call a divine passive because the unstated actor in the literary context is God. So let me just illustrate what a passive is uh, so you can follow me better here. What's the difference between saying I made mistakes as opposed to mistakes were made. Now, which one would a politician say? <laughs> okay, you got it. You got it. You, okay, so we say, I made mistakes. I is the one doing the mistaking. Uh, it specifies the actor. Mistakes were made doesn't tell you. All right? It, it, it's more ambiguous. And the phrase, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, implies in this context that God did the preparing. If you read what comes before this, it's got to be God. But it doesn't emphasize God as the actor, like the preparing beforehand for glory emphasizes God as the actor. We'll come back to that. So that's, I told you there are a handful of passages that, that address this. Here's another one. It's First Peter 2, and I'd summarize it this way. God destined certain people to disobey the word and thus stumble. After Peter emphasizes that God will judge unbelievers for rejecting Christ the cornerstone, he explains They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Who destined them to stumble? This is another divine passive. God destined or appointed that certain people would disobey the word and thus stumble. Another passage is in Jude. I'd summarize it this way. God designated certain people for condemnation. Here's what Jude 4 says. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Again, were designated as another divine passive. God is ultimately the one who designated certain people beforehand for this condemnation. And this particular word, word designated, it translates a verb that means to write in advance or before, to write beforehand. And Jude's likely referring to Old Testament judgment prophecies. So God is the one who breathed out those Old Testament judgment prophecies and thus foreordained this condemnation he pronounced. Here's another passage, or two of them actually, from Revelation. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8. I'd summarize it this way. 
God intentionally did not write the names of certain individuals in the book of life before he created the world. Revelation 13.8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And 17.8, the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Both of these passages are using the passive voice again, but it's again divine passive. God wrote certain names and not others in this book before he created the world. The book of life is a book that records the names of those who will enjoy eternal life with God. And God intentionally did not write the names of certain individuals in this book before he created the world. Finally, one more passage. It's actually two, but it reads exactly the same in Matthew 11 and Luke 10. I'd summarize it this way. God hid Jesus' message from the wise and understanding. Here's what the Gospels say. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This isn't a passive here. This is active. You have hidden. And these things refers to Jesus' message. God hid Jesus' message from certain people and revealed it to others. And Jesus' prayer here is striking because he praises God not merely for hiding his message. Excuse me, I, I said it the wrong way. Not merely for revealing it, but also for hiding it. Would you think to pray that way? Jesus prayed that way. Thank you, Father, that you not only revealed the message, but you hid your message. And you think, why, why would he thank God for that? And he says at the end, here's the reason, for such was your gracious will. And that means good pleasure. If something pleases the Father, it also pleases the Son. And if it pleases the Father and the Son, it should please us as well. But that leads to a question. Does God reveal and conceal in the same way, symmetrically? Have you heard the term double predestination before? Double predestination? Well, what, what do we think? Are election and, and reprobation symmetrical? Double predestination means that you have election, positive predestination, and reprobation, negative predestination. That's how I've been defining it. But there's another way to use that term that I wouldn't agree with. So let me show you two views on double predestination. One is equal or symmetrical double predestination, and the other is unequal or non-symmetrical double predestination. So according to the equal view, God elects and reprobates people in the same way, symmetrically. According to the unequal view, God elects and reprobates people in different ways. According to the equal view, election and reprobation are equally active decrees. Not so for the unequal view. According to the equal view, in reprobation, God sovereignly chose to work unbelief in certain unfallen individuals and condemn them. According to the unequal view, in reprobation, God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and withhold his regenerating grace. So 
when I refer to double predestination and defend it, I'm referring to unequal or non-symmetrical double predestination. Both of these views agree that God is absolutely sovereign over reprobation. So when God chose to save certain individuals and pass by others, his choices were deliberate, not accidental. But these two views differ in how God thought about individuals when he chose to save them. So in this equal view, God thought about individuals as unfallen, morally neutral. But in the unequal view, God thought about individuals as fallen, as sinful. And at least five reasons support this unequal or non-symmetrical view. So here are five reasons that God thought about individuals as fallen and sinful when he chose to save them. Number one, God chose to save individuals in love and with delight. But reprobation brings God sorrow. Number two, elect sinners are in no way responsible for election, but non-elect sinners are responsible for condemnation. No sinner deserves election. Every sinner deserves condemnation. So reprobation does not mean that God decreed to transform innocent human beings into wicked ones and then damn them. God doesn't harden or condemn innocent humans. Number three, election highlights that God is gracious and reprobation highlights that God is just. Number four, Romans 9, 22 and 23, that passage uses an active voice for election and a divine passive for reprobation. Again, the active is vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. The passive is vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And Paul's use of the active and passive there suggests that we should not treat election and reprobation as symmetrical. And finally, number five, the Bible depicts God as thinking about us before the foundation of the world as guilty sinners and thus needing to be saved. Remember in Ephesians 1 that one of the goals of election when, is that God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless, which means he's thinking of us as unholy and blameworthy. So you don't plan to show mercy to someone unless that person's in need. And God planned to show mercy to us because he thought about us as sinners who needed to be rescued. So here's how I'd answer question 11. Who ultimately causes reprobation? God ultimately causes reprobation, but not in the same way that he chose to save individuals. That leads to a lot more questions. Stick with me. All right, question number 12 here. How does God accomplish reprobation? How does he do this? How does he carry out his decree? The primary means of reprobation is hardening. Hardening. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he can harden whoever he wills. Romans nine seventeen and 18 says, The Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very, very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So when God hardens an individual, he's not merely reacting 
to how they previously decided to harden their hearts against God for themselves. God unconditionally hardened Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of the Egyptians. God freely chose to have mercy on whomever he wanted, and he freely chose to harden whomever he wanted. That's his right, and his choice is decisive. So the, the primary means of reprobation is hardening, and several other passages combine two other metaphors in addition to hardening, and those are blinding and deafening. Blinding and deafening. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 says, Go, this is God, God is commissioning Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The New Testament quotes this passage at least five times. It's in all four of the Gospels and in Acts, and, and also alluded in John 9 and Roman, Romans 11. Uh, so Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 does not specify that eternal punishment is in view, but that's what the New Testament passages imply in their literary context when they quote this. And, and all these passages presuppose that God sovereignly hardens and blinds and deafens sinners. And what's remarkable about this is that the very same gospel message that can soften hearts and open ears and open eyes is the same message that can also harden hearts and deafen ears and close blind eyes. So the sun melts ice and hardens clay. And God's truth can act the same way. So how, how does God harden? At least three ways. One is that God hardens by withholding grace. Our sinful hearts are worse than we think. It shouldn't surprise us when a horde loots a store when no police are present or available. God has kindly given God-hating rebels all kinds of restraining grace so that people don't behave as wickedly as they could. And one way that God hardens individuals is simply by withholding his common grace. God withholds grace when he hides Jesus' message from people. We just saw that in Matthew 11 and Luke 10. God withholds grace when he removes moral restraints and gives people up to what their sinful hearts desire. Thinking of Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up, gave them up, gave them up. God gives people up. He gives them enough rope to hang themselves. God removes withholding. He, he removes his common grace, withholds grace. That's one way God hardens. Second, God hardens through sinful people. God uses wicked people to accomplish his purposes. And this includes humans such as Joseph's brothers, the Sabaeans who murdered Job's servants and plundered his livestock, the Babylonians in Habakkuk, Judas in the Gospels. This also includes Satan and demons. God can accomplish his decree of reprobation by hardening hearts and blinding eyes through wicked people. And third, God hardens with the truth. Paul writes this remarkable statement in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, it says, for those being saved, the truth is the aroma of Christ, a fragrance 
from life to life. But to others, that very same message is a fragrance from death to death. Again, the sun melts ice, hardens clay. God can harden with the truth. And you might be wondering, is that fair? Is all this fair? It's crucial as we ask that question to remember at least two truths. One is God is the supreme creator and we are his creatures. Remember that Paul anticipates the fair argument in Romans nine nineteen to 21. You will say to me, then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Second, it's important to remember that when God hardens, blinds, and deafens an individual by withholding grace, that person is not innocent, but already guilty. God shows mercy to certain sinners, and he hardens certain sinners. We're not innocent, neutral people whom God chooses to save or pass over. Each of us is a rebel against God Almighty, a rebel against the king, an idolater, a wicked traitor. And God sovereignly and graciously chose to save some sinners and to condemn the rest. So God hardens, blinds, and deafens sinners, but not in the same way that he softens the hearts, opens the eyes, and opens the ears of sinners. And you might be thinking, how can God ordain sin but not be guilty of sin himself? In Sermon 2, I asked the same question in another way. How is it possible that God ordained both what we choose and that we freely and responsibly choose what we most want? And my answer there is the same as my answer here. I don't know precisely how. It's a mystery. But God has revealed both of these truths to us in Scripture, so we dare not deny one of them simply because we don't understand exactly how God can be free from sin, not guilty at all of sin, and yet ordain sin. And I tried to make sense of this to some degree in Sermon 2 with the analogy of a novelist and characters in his story. Theologians also help us here by distinguishing three kinds of causes. So this may help. The ultimate cause ordains or ensures an action. Approximate cause influences an action, and an efficient cause directly performs an action. So an example is David's census. The ultimate cause of David's census is God. Second Samuel 24 says the Lord incited David to number Israel and Judah. Ultimate cause. The proximate cause in that case is Satan. Satan. So Second Chronicles 21 says that Satan incited David to number Israel. And an efficient cause in that case is David. King David commanded Joab to number the people. And then later he said, I have sinned greatly for what I have done. Here's another example, the death of Christ. The ultimate cause of the death of Christ is God. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite or predetermined 
plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23. The people did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. That's Acts 4.28. Approximate cause of Christ's death is the Jews. They incited Jesus' death by demanding that Pilate crucify Jesus. You can read about this in the Gospels. And an efficient cause of Christ's death is the Gentiles. Acts 2.23 says that the hands of lawless men, and then 4.27, and the Gentiles carried out Jesus' crucifixion. Specifically, Pontius Pilate ordered it, and the Roman soldiers performed it. So David's census and the death of Christ illustrate three levels of causes. God is the ultimate cause, accomplishes his purposes through secondary, that is proximate and efficient causes. The secondary causes intend evil, but God intends it for good. And the people who freely sin as secondary causes are accountable to God for their sinful actions. Now, one caution here. Describing God as the ultimate cause may be misleading since the word cause typically means to make something happen. So we must emphasize that God is never the efficient cause of evil. He never infuses evil thoughts or intentions into the hearts of sinners. God is not sinful. So here's how I'd answer question 12. How does God accomplish reprobation? God accomplishes reprobation by hardening hearts, blinding eyes, and deafening ears. I believe that's what Scripture teaches. Question 13, what is the result of reprobation? Remember, I've defined reprobation this way. God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them and punish them. The result is punishment. And thinking about this is heavy. It is sorrowful, even terrifying. Eternal punishment is the opposite of eternal life, supreme joy, ultimate satisfaction. It's hell. Hell is punishment, destruction, banishment, a place of suffering eternally. At least five terms describe the destiny that God predetermined for non-elect sinners. One is wrath. Paul asks in Romans 9.22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? A second word is destruction. Again, in Romans 9.22, those vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. Destruction there translates a word that commonly occurs in the New Testament for the eternal ruin that unbelievers will experience. And third, Paul asks in Romans eleven seven, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So what was it that Israel was seeking? It's in Romans 9, 31 and 32, a right standing with God. So a result of hardening is, number three, not obtaining a right standing with God. Four, 
is from Jude 4. Jude explains certain people have crept in unaware, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Condemnation. That anticipates Jude 5 to 16 and refers to when God finally condemns unrepentant sinners. So condemnation is our fourth term. And finally, from Revelation 2015, is a lake of fire. This is a terrifying scene. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All five of those terms are the, re- the result of reprobation. And how should we feel about this? Is it okay to feel sorrow? Should we feel sorrow? Yes, absolutely we should feel sorrow. I'll give you two passages that explain why. First is this is how God feels. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then Paul writes these God-breathed words about his fellow Israelites at the very beginning of Romans 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So yes, we should feel great sorrow. That's not all we should feel, but we should feel at least that. So here's how I'd answer question 13. What is the result of reprobation? The result of reprobation is wrath, destruction, not obtaining a right standing with God, condemnation, and a lake of fire. In short, hell. Question 14. What is the goal of reprobation? If it brings God sorrow to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them, then why did he choose to do it? Is his sorrow fake or false? No, God's sorrow is not fake. It's genuine. As we saw in Sermon 3 last week, it's possible for a person to genuinely have two competing desires and to act in accord with one desire without in any way making that other desire fake or false. So what does God value more highly than saving all humans without exception? God in his infinite wisdom ordained election and reprobation to be the way they are because his sovereign choices will glorify him in a way that other situations would not. And we simply do not know all the reasons that God sovereignly chose to pass over some and not others. We, we don't know. But God has revealed at least two goals. Number one is to glorify God for his wrath and power. And number two is to glorify God for the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Now those two goals are not parallel. The first goal is subservient to the second. The second is ultimate. So let's isolate them and think first about goal one to glorify God for his wrath and power. Romans 9, and 23 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We'll stop there. So just note those two ways that God, in his sovereignty and justice, chose to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them. These two ways make much of God. Number one, it shows or displays God's wrath against sin, and thus it glorifies God's justice. Eternally punishing unrepentant sinners in hell is righteous. It shows that God is just. And number two, it displays God's power, his power over rebellious sinners. Eternally punishing powerfully these, these rebels like Pharaoh, king of Egypt, shows that they are no match for the all-powerful God of vengeance. This shows God's wrath and it shows God's power. And we should praise God for those attributes. Seven times in the book of Revelation, seven times people praise God for righteously judging and punishing his enemies. When God serves justice by judging and punishing his enemies, he deserves glory for his wrath and power. Goal number two is to glorify God for the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Let's read it again. Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience and vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Here it is. Here's the purpose. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If reprobation did not exist, then there would be aspects of God's glory that we could not perceive and praise God for. Specifically, God is not only just, God is merciful. This teaching is hard. An imperfect illustration here might help. So about 20 years ago, I shopped for a diamond engagement ring for a beautiful young lady, godly lady named Jenny. And when I inquired about particular diamond rings in jewelry stores, which I had never frequented before, the jewelers would shine bright lights on the diamond ring against the, black drop, the, the backdrop of black velvet cloth. And I think, why the, the black cloth? Why always the black cloth and the bright lights? Well, the reason is that that black cloth helps you better see, better perceive, better treasure the glories of that diamond. Similarly, it's not a perfect analogy, but similarly, one of God's goals for sovereignly and justly choosing to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them is to glorify the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And that's why we can praise God for his mercy and grace. So here's how to answer question 14. What is the goal of reprobation? It's a long answer. I'm trying to use the wording from Romans 9. God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them to glorify himself for his wrath and power and especially to glorify himself for the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. One more question. Question 15. Who deserves blame for reprobation? 
God sovereignly chose to pass over certain sinners and punish them. So does that mean that God deserves blame for reprobation? No. Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And again in Romans 9, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? A sinner is responsible for his or her reprobation because sinners are responsible for their sins. So I'd answer question 15 this way. Who deserves blame for reprobation? Sinful humans, not God, deserve blame for reprobation. Now, I'd like to conclude this sermon series by very briefly, I promise, suggesting nine ways to respond to what the Bible teaches about predestination. Number one, don't reject reprobation because it seems unfair to you. Scripture teaches that God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them. Don't wish that Scripture would say something different we want to treasure whatever God has revealed and not apologize for any of it. My job as a preacher is not to say things in a way that will tickle your ears or to sugarcoat the word of God. My job is to say, here's what the king said. Here's what it means. Here's how we should live in light of it. So I'm, I'm doing my best to say, here's what God says. Don't reject it because it seems unfair. And uh, even though it can seem horrifying, it's in the Bible, and we know that God is righteous and fair. You have as much of a right to question God and his ways as a clay pot has to question the potter who molded it. Just remember, in election, sinners get mercy. In reprobation, sinners get justice. God judges sinners justly. God is just. He always does what is just. Number two, be humbled. Be humbled. You might be wondering, how could God choose to pass over sinners and eternally punish them? A better question is, how could God choose to save anyone? Or more pointedly, how could God choose to save me? Now that's a good question. As Isaac Watts' hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place, puts it, we sang this last week, each of us cry, with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? If you're a Christian, what is the difference between you and a non-Christian? Is it your brilliance? You sized up a good deal and you made the, the right decision? The difference is that God chose you. There's no place for pride here. You're not smarter or wiser than people who reject God. And that's humbling, isn't it? Number three, be deeply grateful that God chose you. If you are a Christian, it is because God sovereignly and graciously chose to save you. And what can make you more thankful than that? Number four, abominate or hate sin. God hates sin so much that he righteously punishes people eternally for it. 
So don't think, well, since God chose me, I can live however I want. God forbid. Read Romans 6, 1 and 2. God's choosing you should motivate you to be holy. Hate sin. Number five. Proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone. You don't know who the elect are. You don't know. You get to pray for unbelievers and to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone, especially people who seem uninterested or antagonistic or hardened. We can't ever, with full knowledge, say that person is a reprobate or that person's apostate. We don't know. We don't know. Never give up on someone. Number six, flee to Christ. If you're not a Christian, then flee to Christ. You can't make the excuse, I want to come to Christ, but he won't let me because he decreed to pass over me. It's like I'm knocking on the door, but he's saying, no, it's locked to you. That's, that's not how it works. People reject God because they love their sin. And they come to God when God draws them. Jesus says in John 3, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus invites you, if anyone thirsts, anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's Jesus' invitation. What will you do with Jesus? Number seven, don't expect to understand every aspect of predestination. Curious minds will inevitably wonder, how can God be the ultimate cause of reprobation and humans still be responsible for their condemnation? Again, that's a mystery. I can't fully explain that philosophical tension because the Bible doesn't. Number eight, trust God. You might be tempted to distrust God when you think about specific unbelievers who are dear to you, a family member or a close friend. It might be helpful to remind yourself that you don't know with certainty the spiritual condition of anyone. Only God does. But more importantly, you should trust God. The rock, His ways are perfect for all His ways are justice. All of them. All of them. You can't comprehend all the reasons that God does what he does, but will you trust his character? Will you trust him, the God of justice? And finally, number nine, praise God for his wrath, power, and mercy. You should feel deep sorrow when you think about some people who will rebel against their creator forever and never experience the joy of knowing and treasuring God. And you should praise God because he designed reprobation to glorify his wrath and power and mercy. That's why Jesus praised God for hardening some. Remember how he prays? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So now, after four weeks considering predestination, I pray that God will use this study to help you increasingly treasure God and to glorify God for his wrath and power 
and especially to glorify God for his mercy, his undeserved kindness to you, and to proclaim the gospel freely and boldly. The purpose of all of this study of predestination is not primarily to learn more information. It's to, it's to better know and worship the God who predestines. The more you know about God and his ways, the deeper and sweeter will be the praise. So let's respond by praying and then singing and then celebrating the Lord's Supper. Father, we don't fully understand you and your ways, but we acknowledge that you are the all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, all-wise creator. And we put our hands over our mouths in reverential awe. We praise you that you are just and good and that you always do what is just and good. It grieves us to think of family and friends and neighbors and people all around us who don't love you and are on a path to hell. So we beg you to be gracious and merciful for the sake of your fame. We praise you for your wrath and power, and we praise you especially for your undeserved kindness to us. Oh, the depth of your riches and wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are your judgments. How inscrutable your ways. For who has known your mind? Or who has been your counselor? Or who has given a gift to you with the result that you must repay him? For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.